We're heading through the Gospel of Matthew. It's a, it's a, a long book, and we're not rushing. We're kind of taking our time, and we find ourselves in chapter 5, where that familiar passage known as the Sermon on the Mount uh, is there, and Jesus is teaching a large crowd of people on the side of a hill above the sea, And he is transitioning into a new section of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to pick it up with verse 21, chapter 5, verse 21, through verse 26 for our text today. And you're going to find that um, these next weeks, uh, that as Christ teaches, yes, to this audience, um, culturally, historically, during his lifetime, for the very first time, falling on their ears, Quite familiar territory for us, you're going to find that these teachings are so relevant. They are exactly what's going on today in our world and in our hearts and the things that they were dealing with and that Jesus wanted to confront in them, his audience of that day, are the very same things that we deal with today. Our topic today is murder. Murder. It's really a prevalent topic in our culture. We'll read our text in just a minute. I want you to think with me just a minute about how accustomed to murder we have become. In the month of July, in the city of Chicago alone, there were 37 murders. Who cares? To date, in Chicago alone, 218 murders in 2014. In Los Angeles, they're ahead of Chicago. To date... 2014 murder rate, 308. In New York City alone, 2013 stat, 334 murders. Back up 10 years to 2003, 248 murders. Back up to 1993, 454 murders. It's incredible. It's overwhelming the numbers of mayhem and murder that's going on around us all the time. But we love it, don't we? You can't take that murder stuff out of our favorite shows. Take murder and homicide and death, wrongful death, off our televisions and our movie screens and we'll be bored out of our minds. They are favorite shows. We're mesmerized by murder. We're mesmerized by the crime scene investigation They've taken us, haven't they, even into the morgue where we stare asphyxiated. Is that the right word? Our eyes affixed. (laughs) We might be drunk down there. I, I can't remember what I said. Our eyes affixed to the corpse in the morgue as they examine the bullet wound, the knife cut, the bludgeoned skull. But murder's no new topic. You realize that, right? Um, murder's been around a long time. And in fact, it's really interesting to just kind of think a minute about how quickly murder entered the scene of mankind's family life. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. And it was shortly after their fall, while there's only basically one family, we don't know whether Cain and Abel had siblings at this time. I would assume that they had We don't know the exact chronology of timeline, but one afternoon, one brother picks up a rock and smashes in the skull of his other brother and kills him, and his blood runs into the dirt. First family, 
One generation into human, humanity, and we've got murder. We've got murder. It's pretty horrific, although we've come accustomed to it when it happens in our neighborhood or in our small country community here in, in, in the Shenandoah Valley. We're shocked. Every so often we have a homicide. They're on the rise here, even in the eastern panhandle. But even though we don't really see 218 body bags lined up out on the sidewalk like the city of Chicago could show us for the year to date, so it's a little less than real to us, we still are, when we read the news and see the news, horrified by the reality of murder. But has it occurred to you that you could be guilty of murder today? That you could have already, according to our Lord Jesus in our text today, have committed murder this morning. That you could sit in church and commit murder. It is possible that some in this room, someone in this room, has actually committed an unjust killing of a human life. I don't know of anyone like that. Others, perhaps in law enforcement or military activity, have been called upon to take human life. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about unjust murder. And we think, like Jesus' audience thinks, that because my hand hasn't held the knife that stopped a beating heart, my hand hasn't pulled the trigger that stopped a beating heart, my hands have not swung the bat that bashed the brains, that stopped communicating to the heart so it stopped beating, that we haven't committed murder. And that's very much the way Jesus' audience thought. But in his audience, like in our audience today, it is very possible that someone here this morning can name people or a person, and you could name them immediately, that you have to admit you just despise. You can't stand them. It's possible that someone in our audience today among us can name someone very specifically towards whom you have a deep-seated, resentful, burning anger and it doesn't go away. It is also possible that in our audience today there are people who could name someone that they, truth be known, secret of the heart be let out, they wish they would die. They think, my life would be so much better off if that person were out of here and if they would die, I wouldn't shed a tear. It is even possible that you have daydreamed about how you would like to kill that person if you could just get away with it. I remember as a little boy in South Chicago, we had empty lots behind our church and between the blocks of homes in the suburbs of South Chicago. And those empty lots grew up in grass and we called it the prairie. And there were some piles of dirt from old construction that were there. And we played on those overgrown piles of dirt all the time. We played army and we played all kinds of things out there. And I remember one afternoon, there were leftover huge cement culverts and I remember being stunned with my probably nine-year-old ears as Philip Raven 
talk to us about how he thought he could kill this kid named Peter up the street and hide him under those concrete culverts and probably get away with it. What is it about the human heart that has the capacity to kill? Let's read our text and let's see what Jesus has to say about it. It's very convicting, I'm warning you, and it is a wake-up call for most of us, if not all of us in the room today, that we would examine our hearts as Jesus puts his finger on the pulse, on the reality of the source of murder and how that can go on in our hearts at any given time. You see, our hearts are the seedbed. It's, it's, it's the cauldron where festers the scum out of which ultimately comes an anger and an emotion that allows the hand to move to take a life. Maybe your hand just hasn't moved. Jesus is going to begin with the first of six parallel statements where six times he's going to say, you have heard that it was said, and he's going to quote the Old Testament, but then he's going to add to it. You see, he has not come and make clear that you understand. He is not saying that the Old Testament isn't meaningful and that the law doesn't mean what it says, but he's pointing out to them that the way they have through rabbinical tradition been keeping the law, been missing entire parts of the law, and as God sees right into our hearts, into the core of our being, He wants to show them that the keeping of the law has more to do with just external behavior, but it has everything to do with an attitude of the heart. Here we go. You have heard that it was said, Jesus said, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, Raka, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What an interesting confrontation we have with Jesus. And we begin, number one, with Christ in contrast. Christ contrasts. What's he contrasting? He's contrasting his own teaching with the traditional interpretation of the law. Number one, we're going to see in this passage that Christ contrasts his teaching with the traditional interpretation of the law. You see, this is, and you recognize it, almost everybody in the room probably recognized, that what Jesus was talking about was the sixth commandment recorded in our Bibles in Exodus chapter 20, where Moses came down from the mount, he had the commandments, he, God gave those commandments to his people Israel. The sixth one is, thou shalt not kill. ESV translates it, you shall not murder, because it is not an unequivocal statement about killing. We are allowed to kill chickens and fry them. There is an appropriate time in self-defense, and the Bible addresses this, where someone's life may be taken because of the self-defense of the family or the country. 
Paul clearly instructed in the book of Romans that the government has the sword of authority. And that there is an appropriateness. There is law enforcement that on occasion, for the protection of the community, has to take a life. He's not talking about that. He's talking about murder. He's talking about the inappropriate taking of a life by one person to another person, not a person to an animal. It is okay to deer hunt. It is not okay to people hunt. And so Jesus is acknowledging, you know the law. You know the law. Moses said to them of old, thou shalt not kill. Now he adds a little bit that no doubt his audience understood and it was added rabbinically, no doubt enhanced by the Pharisees. You remember these Pharisees, we talk about them every week as Jesus sits with this crowd of followers and disciples, a significant size crowd, no doubt. And I picture, this is not in the Bible, but I picture these Pharisees and Sadducees kind of slinking around the audience, watching, listening, criticizing, waiting for their moment to try to ask stumping questions of our Lord as this country bumpkin carpenter from Nazareth has the audacity to bodaciously say, you have heard it said, but now I am telling you, which he had all authority because He was God in the flesh. So we have great insight from our Lord Himself what God thinks about how we are to fulfill the law. And this is part of God's moral law. It never is outdated. It is inactive for today. It is as relevant today as it was when Moses received it. Not everyone believes that in the church. I believe that fully. That God's moral law is an unchanging law. And when God said don't kill back then, He meant it just as much as it's reinforced in the New Testament today. But Jesus is going to poke us in the eye with a reality about our hearts today. So as He makes this contrast, we see that added to it is whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So their statement is technically accurate. It's technically accurate in that it's reinforced in, uh, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but in Numbers chapter 35, let me read to you quickly what Moses added here in an explanation of this. In Numbers 35 verse 30, some added detail is given where it says, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So no doubt, back to Matthew 5, they had created systems whereby, much like in our court, there were ratings or there was degrees of murder. And they evidently were doing that at some level. You see, this Exodus 20.13, Thou shalt not kill, was a clearly established guideline built upon the foundation of Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, where God gave Noah, following the flood, when Noah came out of the ark, God gave Noah an imperative in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, where he said, anybody who sheds man's blood, should his blood then be shed. This is what it says in Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So it's a principle given long before Mosaic law, reinforced in the Ten Commandments. I take it to be a directive that is good for all people of all times, everywhere. Why? The reason why is given in the end of Genesis 9, 6, upon which the law is built. For God made man in his own image. 
That's why God put a protective. God put a protective lid on human life. God says you're not allowed to just take life indiscriminately. You cannot do murder. And if you do, your blood is to be shed. It's a clear directive. Alright? And the reason He gave is because you're created in the image of God. And this can be helpful for some of us who struggle in our hearts with deep-seated anger against offensive people in our lives that even sometimes takes us to the point where we wish we could do murder even if we never would or we think we never would. By the way, it is not an accurate statement when people say, and you'll hear people say this regularly, well, I could never do that. And people will say that in an interview sometimes on the news about someone that they're being asked about, about some heinous crime that they've, they've done, and they'll say, well, I don't believe he did, he did that. He could never do that. Listen to me. Any human can do anything at any time. And apart from the grace of God holding back our sinful hearts, all people are capable of all sin. Doesn't mean that all people will sin all sins. But don't ever think that you can't do any kind of sin. Given the right circumstances, you don't know the weakness of your own flesh. But because we're created in the image of God, life is sacred. And listen, the murder count that I gave out of Chicago and New York and Washington, D.C. or whatever I mentioned doesn't even count the unborn murders. Those count too. Murder goes on around us all the time. We are a nation that is incredibly guilty of murder. And the reason it's so serious is that every time somebody murders an unborn baby or somebody murders another person, they, they desecrate the image of God. That's why we can shoot a buck deer. Or we can shoot at some ducks out of a duck blind. And it's not a sin. They weren't created in the image of God. Oh, they were beautifully created by God, but they were not created in the image of God. Only people were created in the image of God. That's why we can take our chainsaw and we can saw down a great oak tree. And we can saw it up and make furniture. Or we can saw it up and burn it in the stove. And we can kill that oak tree. And it's not a sin. It might not be wise, but it's not a sin. Because that oak tree was not created in the image of God. Only people were created in the image of God. And that's why this morning, even as we move forward with the message, when you have such deep-seated anger against somebody, you need to recognize the toll that sin has taken upon them. When I was Googling for some murder statistics and I ran into the Chicago statistics, they have a really active website that keeps account of their murders. And it puts up a picture of the person murdered. And it gives an account of whether the person who murdered them has been brought to justice or not. And I was scrolling down through and I saw, I stopped on a face. It was, it just, it just captivated me. It was a man about 37 years old, if I remember correctly. And it was the most pitiful face. It was clear that sin had taken a toll on this guy. And he had been murdered at like 2.37 in the morning. Shot in downtown Chicago somewhere. And I looked at his eyes and I looked at his face. And he was pitiful. He was a pitiful, wretched man. And you need to look at a face like that and not hate that man. Now, he was murdered. I don't know what he was doing, why somebody shot him. But you have to remember that sin destroys. And that that man, as pitiful as he was, and even the shooter who shot him, they at one time were precious little babies that their mommies held in their arms. 
And sin got a hold of them somewhere along the line so that they were doing things at 2.37 in the morning that men ought not to do. And it ends up in death. Sin leads to death. And so Jesus makes this contrast. Okay, technically it's accurate. You you haven't done murder. And everybody in the audience is thinking, okay, I've never held a knife. I've never pulled a trigger. I haven't swung a club that has stopped a beating heart. All right? You shall not murder, murder, murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. A little bit of wiggle room there. A little bit of addition by the the, um, teachers of the law of that day, whereby they took people to court, and Jesus is going to kind of reflect that in his response about levels of court and levels of guilt in his response. So evidently they were not keeping the law to the nth degree whereby if you murdered, your life was taken, but it would go to the court and, if, and they had these degrees of murder liable to judgment. But Jesus contrasts it with this. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, notice the phrase brother. So he's talking about people who are connected, evidently uh, in the body of the followers of Christ, disciples. They will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So though, as Jesus contrasts the traditional interpretation of the law, they are technically correct and their hand hasn't stabbed anyone or pulled the trigger and this is widely and socially acceptable, um, it is morally limited. It's morally limited. And Jesus wants to point out that though you haven't actually done the act, I'm telling you that if you have ever pronounced a judgment or an insult on your brother, somebody you can't stand or called him a fool, then you're guilty of murder. In essence, it's the same as being guilty of murder. You just haven't carried out the act. His point is that when God gave the law, he was, it was designed to turn our hearts to righteousness, not just our external behavior to a righteous act. And so secondly, what we see is that Christ confronts He starts with the contrast, but now Christ confronts with a spiritual examination of the heart. Christ confronts with a spiritual examination of the heart. He's going straight to the heart of this audience. And I want you to notice now that there's three things that we just read that he said, and they are in degrees of seriousness. First one is anger. Look what he says. Okay, you've heard it said, thou shalt not do murder. Everybody in the audience says, whoo, yeah, I didn't do murder. But then he says, but... If you've been angry with your... Now all of a sudden we're getting nervous. What do you mean? What, wait, 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 wait. You shall not murder, but, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. And what Jesus is pointing out there, I think the audience understood, and, and uh, Bible students have looked at this, this idea of liable to judgment is no doubt a reference to the local council of leadership that was made up of 23 members. So it was like this, like the local court. Okay, so he's starting off with anger. What are we looking at here? We're looking at an attitude of the heart, right? It's an attitude of the heart, and it is going to get you in trouble. It's going to get you judgment in front of the court of 23 locally, and they can cast out some kind of a degree of punishment upon you. But then he goes on to say, Not only those who are angry with his brother, so he's starting with an attitude of the heart. He now moves to the words of the mouth. The words of the mouth. Whoever insults his brother 
will be liable to the council. Now, this is the next step up. This is the Sanhedrin, the council uh, made up of uh, uh, 71 members of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the, these, this Sanhedrin, it was the ruling body of religious leaders who were also kept uh, a political lid on things there as well. So if you have the attitude of anger, you're going to be guilty of judgment at a little lower level. But now I'm telling you, now you're casting insult. And in your Bible, it might use the word raka right there. It's kind of a cool word to say, isn't it? Raka. You shouldn't say it. It's an old-fashioned bad word that nobody knows what it really means today. They don't know how to translate it. That's why in your Bible, it might have been transliterated, transliterated raka. It is highly insulting. It was very much a put-down, and the equivalent that uh, Bible students today suggest that it might be would be the idea of worthless or an idiot. You are a worthless idiot. So it starts with an attitude of the heart, and that's my anger. I'm so angry with this person. Watch out, you're going to be guilty of judgment. And then it grows. And it starts to spill over my mouth, out my mouth. And this anger that's been festering inside in the cauldron of the depths of my soul now can't be contained. And it's like a pressure cooker building up and it wants to spill out my mouth. And I look at this guy and I say, Raka, you idiot. So you better watch it. That's taking you to the high court. But then he says, thirdly, in progression, if you condemn that person, you curse them. Look what he says. And whoever says, you fool, will be guilty of the hell of fire. Hell of fire is the word Gehenna there. It's the valley of Hinnom. It's a, it's a valley where they burn trash for years and years and years. And the fire never went out. The whole community outside of Jerusalem dumped trash there. And it just says... And years before, in 2 Kings, wicked kings had, had done human sacrifice there. It was a bloody, dirty, filthy, burning, garbage dump. Hina, Gehina, they called it the fire of hell, where the fire never goes out. Everybody in the audience knew exactly what he was talking about. You'll be guilty of being thrown into the fire of hell. You fool. What's he talking about there? What's he saying? It doesn't seem that bad to say, you fool. No, what, he's, what it is, it's a word of condemnation. And the idea there, it comes from a Greek word that is, if you transliterate it, it would be spelled in English, M-O-R-O-S, moros. We get our English word moron from it. You are, you are just a moron. The idea means that, that you are stupid and dull, and the, the ramification in this passage is that you are unregenerate. You are an unregenerate. And I was thinking about the equivalent in our language today. And I think there's two phrases that go on all the time that are the equivalent of this third level of condemnation. Two of the most common phrases, I hope you don't use them, but that you'll hear in the workplace and hear everywhere. Number one, God damn you. That's what they're saying. This condemnation, this word of you are condemned, you moron, just may God damn you. You're guilty of murder and go to hell. May you burn in Gehenna. Two of the most common phrases. Think about how often those are stated. 
It's nothing more than the spillage of the heart. It becomes a trite expression. You say, oh, I don't mean it. But words matter. And they expose the heart. And Jesus is penetrating into the depths of our hearts. By the way, I would like right now to just... It's not in the text, but it's in my mind. To just put a parenthesis in our message for a little addendum. Because there's a question that kept coming up to, my, to me that I wish Jesus would deal with. And it's dealt with in some other biblical principles. But is this, okay. So Jesus, okay, Jesus is making this point. You've heard the law. You shall not kill. Okay, I've never pulled the trigger. I've never swung, it, swung the axe. Okay, I'm good. But Jesus contrasts that. But I'm telling you that if you do this, this, and this in your heart and over the lips... You're guilty of murder. So not only does he contrast it, but then he condemns us with that, and we're so guilty of it, right? So then I ask myself, okay, how do I deal with someone that I can't stand? What if there's somebody who has offended me so deeply and hurt me so badly that it seems like no matter how hard I try, I just can't stand that person? I want to throw out a few principles that have been helpful to me as I've had to process some difficult people in my own life. I've titled this, What If, parentheses, reality is, I'm filled with anger and bitterness towards another person. What if I really have this going on and I just don't want it, I can't seem to help it. The the, the offense, the hurt has been so deep. Number one And I'm not going to take a lot of time, but maybe this will stir your thinking and help you process, because it's a very difficult thing. Number one, you need to realize that sin often, if not always, results in the affliction of awful pain. I want to say that again. So I'm trying to process how hurt I am by somebody that is creating angry, hurtful, hateful thoughts. Number one, I must realize that sin often, if not always, results in the infliction of awful pain. And that pain turns to anger. The pain hurts so bad. That person hurt me so bad when I was young, I hate them. So the pain is so deep of the offense being so heinous that that it turns to hate. But you need to recognize that that is what sin does. Sin takes over people's lives and causes them to do things, and the result, the residual of sin is often horribly hurtful. Literally to where you, I can't hardly breathe, it hurts so bad. What this person has done to me and my family, it's overwhelming to me. That's what sin does. Young people, when you offend your family, and you go out and you go off to college and you turn away from the Lord if you do, God forbid, and you hurt you and you wonder why those tears are going down your mama's cheeks. So what are you doing? Sin in your life literally causes pain in people's lives. But listen to me. Hurt does not allow us to hate. Being hurt by sin does not allow me to hate. And so I have to remember that what's happening to me is a residual of sin. Secondly, remember that God is a just judge... And his perfect justice will be carried out. 
Number two, remember that God is a just judge and his perfect justice will be carried out. You want to write down, if you're taking any notes, you want to look this up, put your bulletin in at Romans 12, verses 17 to 21. And in that passage, number three, you're going to read that you are to return good for evil. Learn to return good for evil by God's grace and watch God break through. You just live it out and watch God take over. But James says the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. And Paul said, if I don't return evil for evil, but I return good for evil, and Jesus is going to teach that as well. As difficult as it is, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, walking in obedience to His Word, you can do that and then watch God begin to work. And I'm not telling, I'm not saying it's easy to do because we are impatient for God's perfect justice, aren't we? And we want to feel it. We want to feel, we want to feel our hand on the handle as it comes smashing down and that would be justice. We want to see the look on their face when they get what they deserve, right? And that would be justice. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I'm telling you, you can't do that because of number four, which I already emphasized, you must recognize that the image of God is stamped upon all people everywhere. You must recognize that the image of God is stamped upon all people everywhere, so therefore you must differentiate between the heinousness of sin and the value of the sinner in the sight of God. Recognize what sin does to people. And yes, it's okay to be outraged against sin. But we can't hate the sinner. We must differentiate. Because they are created in the image of God. And they need God's grace to come sweeping through. Save their soul from Gehenna. A few thoughts that might stir your heart. Realize that sin hurts. But hurt does not give license to hate. Remember that God is a just judge, Romans 7, 12, 17 to 21, and His perfect justice will be carried out. Your justice would be imperfect. God's justice is perfect. Number three, learn to return good for evil and watch God break through. Number four, recognize the image of God stamped upon that sinner so that somehow God can give you a grace to care about them. So Christ contrasts the law with his teaching. He confronts by penetrating our hearts and showing us that anger boils up over the lips in insults. It ends up in condemnation for which we are guilty. And then he finishes, number three, he convicts us with two practical illustrations for life. He convicts now with two illustrations. Look what he says. Illustration number one, and I think this is what he's doing here in verse 23. So, see the bridge word so, verse 23. Let me illustrate this. If this is what's going on in your heart, and this is what's starting to come across your lips, let me remind you of something. Verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. See, part of what Jesus is saying here. You cannot cover... Feelings of anger, anger and hatred. And, and when you despise someone, you can't, just, you can't just pretend it's not there and go worship. You know, sing a little louder so you don't feel these feelings. You see, God despises worship that is not built upon obedience. 
Clearly, he said to Saul through Samuel that it is better to obey than to sacrifice. Don't. In the first chapter of the book of Malachi, he says, I wish someone would just shut the doors on the temple than these people coming in unworthily worshiping me with sin in their lives. Just shut the doors. Keep them out. I don't want that kind of worship. And so one of the things Jesus is saying is when you go to worship, for some in this audience to go up to Jerusalem to worship would have been an 80-mile walk. And Jesus is now saying, you get up there and you're starting to worship and you're going to offer your sin offering. It's probably what he's referring to as a sin offering. And you're going to offer this sin offering and worship to God. And all of a sudden, in the back of your mind, it occurs to you, ah, so-and-so got an issue. Leave your offering, go home, find that guy, and make it right. Then come back and offer your offering to the Lord, and then it will be an acceptable offering. It occurs to me that there's three prerequisites for acceptable worship here. Three prerequisites for acceptable worship. Verse 23, notice self-examination. Self-examination. That should be what we did during communion. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember, you see, you're thinking, you're examining. Verse 24, personal initiation. Not only self-examination, but number two, personal initiation needs to take place in relationships so that you can be ready to worship. Notice that your brother has something against you. Now, it's not clear whether you've done something that they have it against you or they just have it against you. That can happen. So it could be that you're not even the guilty one, but notice the way Jesus phrased that, that you are to go to your brother even though he's the one that has something against you. That's hard to do. It's like, I really think that you've got something against me. Hopefully you can get that worked out. But that's self-initiation. You go. Thirdly, I want you to see that reconciliation needs to take place before worship. Remember, that's self-examination. Leave your gift and you go. You initiate. And then first be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. That's reconciliation in verse 24b. Then you're ready to worship. The first illustration that he gives is a church world illustration, isn't it? Notice that he used the word brother in church world. I have a brother who I might not be right with. Notice the second illustration begins with verse 25 without segue. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. He's now talking about an accuser, perhaps not a brother, not another disciple of Christ or someone in the family of God. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Okay, he's shifted. You're no longer worshiping, but now you're in the judicial framework. You're in the political system. You're under the court of law. And you have an issue with an accuser. Somebody has accused you of something. We don't know if you're guilty or not. Evidently, you are at some level because look what he says. While you are going with him to court, okay, your court date has come up, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you won't get out till you've paid the last penny. You'll never get it paid off. And notice when he says you're supposed to do it. You have this accuser. So the first illustration, church world, my brother, my worship, I initiate and I reconcile. Second illustration, real world. Not that church world isn't real world, but real world, a courtroom scene. Our date has come up in court and my accuser and I are heading into court. And he says, while you're going into court, before you get with the judge, settle the matter. 
Now, why is Jesus talking like this? I think it has everything to do with the progression of what he's talking about. Because you're angry. If, if your brother's upset or you've, there's been something go on and there's anger, I'm offended. Or your accuser, you're not going to court, you know, skipping along, holding hands with your accuser. You're angry. Watch Judge Judy and all those crazy shows. They can't stand each other in there. But you're going up the steps to the court. You see, Jesus is saying, you better, you better address that anger because the anger is going to well up and it's going to come across your lips and it's going to end up in condemnation and you're going to be guilty just as though you did murder. Why? Because that's the formula for murder. It boils up in the cauldron. The anger wells up and the hand swings and murder is done. And if it weren't for the anger and the insults and the hurt... You never would have done anger. So it's the essence. It's, it's the same DNA as a murder. You're guilty. Jesus says, settle it quickly. Why? Quickly? Because you're not as mad as you'll be down the line after repeated occurrences. If you let this thing grow, as soon as it happens, you know, nip it in the bud. Because otherwise, it's going to get real bad. And weeks go by and months go by and then we're the Hatfields and the McCoys. And we can't even remember why we can't stand each other. Get it done now. And when you're going up to the court, settle now. Whatever it takes to settle now is not going to be as bad as every penny you own given over to the judge to pay it off when he throws you in the slammer. And then you won't hate. You'll be sitting behind bars just hating everybody. It's huge, isn't it? It's huge. You know, a great application is that what goes on in the heart really matters in the eyes of God. This is not an easy thing. This is a very difficult thing. Any of us are capable of being so offended and so hurt that we would love to do murder. Guard your heart. It's possible you're doing murder every day. Guard your heart. Out of it spring the issues of life, Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart. God sees right in there. Guard your heart. Your heart ultimately will swing the hand. And then it's forever tragic. Let's bow in prayer. So examine your heart right now, would you, for just a minute? Can you identify a person or persons that for whatever the reason, the sin that's gone on has turned to anger, which is boiling over into raka, into you fool, be condemned to hell. And you're guilty. In Jesus' contrasting system, it's not the letter of the law, it's the spirit of the law. It's not the external behavior, it's the attitude of the heart. By God's grace, we can have the victory And we can watch what God's going to do. Things that only Christ can do. It's time to surrender. It's time to surrender it over to the cross. Surrender it over to Christ. Let Him take over. And so, Father, You know our hearts and our minds. You know our needs. And You know what we need to address in our lives. And so would You accomplish Your purposes, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.